Hi there. Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sébastien Couture. This is episode 41 on September 24th, 2014. So as I mentioned last week, we've been a little short on Thursday content for the last few weeks. That's primarily because we haven't attended any conferences since Coin Summit in London. And that's been, that was a couple months ago. So uh, the good news is we've got a whole lot of events lined up for the next two months in October and November. And in fact, we start this week with two interviews that uh, Sharon Jones did for us in London at the Inside Bitcoin's London conference. The first is with Marco Centuri. He's chairman of the Regulatory Affairs Committee of the Bitcoin Foundation and recently appointed Global Policy Council for Blockchain. And so as the New York Department of Financial Services bit license proposal nears the end of its 45-day challenge period, uh, the second challenge period, uh, Mr. Santori gives his predictions on what the legislation will look like when it gets passed, which he expects to happen by the end of this year. And got to say, the outlook isn't really that good. The second interview is with Amor Sexton. She's a lawyer at Adroit, which is a, a law firm based in Sydney, Australia, which specializes in Bitcoin and also does some liaising with the Australian government on behalf of the Bitcoin industry to establish what the regulatory framework should look like. And in her talk with Sean, uh, she spoke about the Australian government's recent guidance and draft ruling on the tax treatment of cryptocurrencies with regards to income tax, capital gains tax, and GST. And they point out how these draft rulings differ from those proposed in other jurisdictions and how they will affect merchants and Bitcoin holders in Australia in the future. So thanks a lot, Sean, for those interviews. And in fact, Sean will be back next week with interviews from Crypto Valley Summit in the Isle of Man. So speaking of conferences, We'll be at at least three events in the next two months, starting with Europe Bitcoin, uh, which is the first Francophone Bitcoin conference in Europe, organized by the French, Swiss and Belgian Bitcoin associations. That hap that's happening on October 8th in Paris. And if you want to attend that, you can get 10% off by using the code EPICENTER. Next is BTC2B. That's happening in Brussels on October 16th and 17th. Now, as the name states, this is a business-to-business -business conference. It's really designed to be some sort of a, a networking event. So if you're a startup, if you're looking for visibility from investors, other entrepreneurs, uh, you really need to be attending this event. There is a startup show, and if you want to register for that startup show, you can do so at btc2b.com. And those startups that get uh, chosen uh, will get a free stand so that they can uh, be on location and, uh, and show off their startup. So if you want to attend that, you can get your tickets at btc2b.com and you can get 15% off by using the code EPICENTER. So those, those are two events happening basically a week from each other. Why not make it a trip? Uh, come to your, to your Bitcoin in Paris, stay for the week. It's an hour and a half Eurostar uh, uh, ride away and then you can go to Brussels on the 16th and 17th. How about that? And uh, we'll also be attending Inside Bitcoin's Paris, and that's on November uh, 20th and 21st. We don't have a coupon code for you yet. We are partnering with that event. We will be there uh, getting uh, interviews as we normally do, but uh, we don't have a coupon code just yet. That's coming. We'll, we'll have that for you in the next few weeks. So I hope you enjoy interviews by Sean Jones at Inside Bitcoin's London. So this is Sean Jones. I'm at Inside Bitcoins in London, and I'm sitting down right now with uh, Marco Santori. Marco Santori is the 
um, chairman of the Regulatory Affairs Committee of the Bitcoin Foundation. He's been involved with um, advising Bitcoin businesses as a lawyer, now a counsel at Pillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw and Pittman uh, in New York. And uh, recently, congratulations, you've been appointed um, Global Policy Counsel for Blockchain. That's right. Uh, that must be an exciting right. new new position for you. It is. And, you know, it's really a sort of a continuation on the outreach work that I've been doing for some time on behalf of the company. And... Um, Really, this is a global situation that, that we're in, and it's cer certainly a global focus, or sorry, a, a, I should say, it's a, it's a global offering that the mm -hmm. company has. This is not a United States story, it's not a European story, it's a global story. And in fact, you know, I, I believe that blockchain has gone on record many times saying that they've seen the biggest growth outside of the U.S. market, mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing generally in Bitcoin as well. And I suppose that really leads me nicely on to the thing I want to talk to you about today, which is the impact of um, New York's bit license proposals um, on the rest of the world, everywhere outside the US, because the, the, the proposals as they're drafted at the moment, and we're speaking in September, and we're at the first draft stage, well, the proposals at the moment are very wide-reaching in terms of scope of businesses that are covered, and in terms of um, extraterritorial reach. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. So, like a lot of things in Bitcoin, this is another global story. It's the New York bit license, right? It's it's something that we like to say is just just one jurisdiction, and yeah, maybe it's maybe it's one of the largest financial jurisdictions in in the world, but it's just one jurisdiction, right? I think that that would be the case if we weren't dealing with Bitcoin, since mm -hmm. obviously we know that Bitcoin is a global story. The the regulations, at least the proposed regulations, are drafted accordingly. And they're, in, they're incredibly broad in scope and also in jurisdictional reach. Any, any transaction involving a New York person um, is captured by the regulations. Um, and any entity, wherever located in the world, uh, servicing uh, a New York person or really engaging in any way with a New York person is, at least on the face of the regulations, captured. So you could be an exchange in somewhere like Paris, France, and have someone walk in, if you have a, a premises, walk in, and if they happen to live in New York or have some business involvement with New York, they would be captured by the regulations and therefore the Bitcoin exchange in Paris would, would have to... Um, technically, I suppose have a bit license would it to deal yeah, with can, you. I I think that's I think that's reasonable, and the at least this is that's on the face of the regulations as they're drafted, um, and it could be even broader broader than that. I could I I could see a United States attorney um, in a prosecutorial capacity arguing that um, anybody who has wired money from a U.S. bank account mm -hmm. uh, to uh, say the Parisian Exchange would trigger the extraterritorial application of the laws. Because dollars are all transferred Absolutely. through New even, York. Even if that person resides in Iceland or Colombia or Georgia. And has never even visited New York and has no dealings with New yeah, York. Conceivably, that's how they're drafted. But And so the, there's another side to the coin, of course, that a lot of regulations are drafted like this. There's, there's, there's nothing uh, particularly special or onerous or offensive about these particular regulations. It's, it's, it's actually mm -hmm. fairly common in the U.S. And what we see is that when these laws are applied, they're applied 
strictly, and they're constrained in their jurisdictional scope because in the U.S. we have a federal constitution. We have the U.S. Constitution, which limits the reach of uh, what's called long-arm jurisdiction, extraterritorial jurisdiction. Uh, and I expect that to happen here regardless of the language of the regulation that ultimately becomes effective. So will, for example, you on behalf of the foundation be making representations in this feedback period that says, you know, you can't do that, Mr. Lorsky, the, 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 the constitution prevents you, or is it something you think might get challenged at a later stage once it does become regulation, if it becomes regulation in the, as proposed at the moment? Well, I can tell you that the foundation will be submitting comments. Mm -hmm. um, Further comments, we've, we've, we've already sent in one letter. Uh, I can't tell you what the contents of that will be just yet, but I can tell you that in, in response to your second question, we can expect and I can almost guarantee based on my knowledge of, of the industry participants that there will be some challenge to this regulation if it is ever enforced. I think right. that what we're, what we're seeing is right now sort of the a frenzy of some people taking deep offense to it, other people saying, well, you know, it's just par for the course, and everybody in between. Uh, but this industry is, is a very vocal industry. It's um, from an economic standpoint, an irrational one at times, and I think that there are plenty of people who will proudly act uh, economically, irrationally, mm -hmm. irrationally, and stand up for their principles. Okay. And um, I think we can, we, 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 we can expect some opposition to the bid license in whatever form it takes. Can, can uh, any challenge take place before it becomes regulation or there's, there's horse trading that goes on, it has to then become regulation and then there's a challenge later? Yeah, that, that's absolutely okay. right. So um, until this regulation becomes effective, until it becomes law, there's very, really very little that, that anybody can do to challenge it under New York state law or under federal law. It's, it's, it's not yet ripe. Okay. And what do you see as being the timetable from, from this point onwards? I know they've recently extended the deadline for feedback, but where does it go from here? Yeah, so the original deadline was somewhere in September. The current deadline is October 21st. And I would expect to see um, new effective regulations uh, quarter one of 2015. Right. And then from there, uh, at least... If, let's just assume this portion of the regulation becomes effective and untouched, from there, uh, market participants or bit license seekers will have a 45-day window during which they can operate uh, before they have to submit an application for the bit license. Mm -hmm. So, for some, because there are some very onerous um, uh, requirements in terms of um, identification, in terms of uh, background checks and uh, financial records and just about everything. Um, businesses that um, that are intending to go down a bit license route in whatever form that takes needs need presumably to start planning for that now. 45 days will go by very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right. And the worst, really the worst of all possible outcomes is that somebody builds a product. They pour their heart and their soul into it. They pour a lot of time, resources, money, sometimes other people's money into it. And they build a product that doesn't fit the regulation. Or they build a product that can't be easily modified to fit the regulation, mm -hmm. to satisfy those obligations. 
Um, and then you've seen months of work uh, go to waste. Mm. And that, that's, that's really one of the primary things I, I work on with clients is helping to structure their offering so that they can comply with or avoid uh, regulations that shouldn't apply to them. Um, so you're, you're forecasting bit licenses becoming effective in Q1 of next year, 2015. Yeah. Um, What's the roadmap from here to there? Will it go through another set of comments, a new draft, or do you think it's going to go, here's all the comments, here's the final version, and it's going to kick in next year? Or how, how does that work? Well, what we've, what we've seen from DFS is a real sense of urgency about this. And like I, I've, I, I hope that I've gone on record and given sort of a, a balanced critique of that and that I think that the bit license is a good thing. I think it's, it's too early at this time. Um, but nonetheless, we've seen a real sense of urgency from DFS. They, were, they initially granted the, the industry the statutory minimum time to respond, um, and much of the industry pushed back against that mm -hmm. in several contexts. And in response, DFS said, okay, they listened. They said, okay, that's, that, that makes sense. We, sh we should have more time for comments, and so now they've extended the deadline. But I don't think we'll see another extension. Okay. Um, I don't think we'll see another draft. Mm -hmm. I think that this, and the foundation has suggested that DFS take an iterative process where they send us another draft mm. and we can give more feedback. But I think that that's pushing against this real sense of urgency internally with DFS. And they're, they're not going to permit that. And so I, I expect that the next thing we'll see from DFS is uh, a new set of regulations. And that will be it then? That'll be it. And they'll give, uh, what, does it become effective within a certain statutory period of time once it's been published, or how does that work? Built into the statute, there's, there's that 45-day right. period. So at minimum, we can expect that. Okay. So, well, we're in September now. You think it's going to be a few months uh, towards the end of the year, beginning of next year, that something will be published and then people have got 45 days to, I think to the, do it? I think that DFS is, is really pushing for a 2014 launch of this. Okay. I think that, you know, despite their best efforts, it's the government. Mm -hmm. So at times, it's, at times it's, uh, it's not as quick as I think the, the stakeholders and the government want it to be. Mm -hmm. And what other predictions do you have for, for bit license? I think that um, some of it will be pared down. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, wow, it's really going on back there. <laughs> My goodness. I think that, um, I think that we'll see primarily the, the definitions be uh, cut a little bit. So right now the definitions are very broad. Pretty much anybody doing anything with bitcoins, mm. with another person's bitcoins, uh, is regulated. I think we're going to see that pared back a little bit. For example, we'll see the securing prong uh, probably removed or, or lightened a bit. Um, right now, anybody who simply, quote, secures somebody else's mm -hmm. bitcoins is, uh, is captured mm -hmm. under, under the licensing requirements. So that would capture conceivably companies like Mycelium or Armory or these local or even anybody distributing the QT wallet, mm. um, QT client rather, mm. um, is technically, I mean, just linguistically, right, helping to secure somebody's Bitcoins. And, I, and DFS has now gone on record recently, I think, uh, in, a, in a Coindesk interview saying um, that that's not what they meant. But 
Um, I guess we'll see the proofs in the pudding. Yeah. We'll see what, what the final laws really say. Okay. Um, any other predictions? I know um, at a, a, a earlier in the conference on a panel you thought uh, about 90% of, um, of, of the proposals will see the light of day. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that I think most people are going to be shocked by the requirement to identify parties on both sides of the transaction. I think that as an industry, we look at that regulation and immediately dismiss it. We think, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's like trying to put a saddle on a Ferrari. I mean, mm. what, what, why would you, you know, what's, what's the point of using Bitcoin if you have to do that? Um, and we just assume that that won't make it through. I disagree. I think that is going to make it through. And I think that, um, and that's, it, 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 that, that rule mirrors something called the travel rule on the, on the federal level, okay. which requires that certain transactions over $3,000 over $3, and certain transactions between financial intermediaries, the information of the customer has to travel yes. with the transaction, right? And if we're going to take any lesson from the federal level, we can take the lesson that FinCEN expects financial intermediaries in the Bitcoin space to follow that rule. And recently, they were in one meeting, they were shocked to find that nobody was following that, not nobody, very few were, were following that rule. Um, and the, the opposition from the Bitcoin space was, well, it doesn't apply to us. It just clearly doesn't apply to us. And FinCEN says, no, if you're going to be a financial intermediary, you need to play by the same rules as every other financial intermediary. Hmm. I think we're going to see that in New York, too. Okay. Well, Marco, um, thank you very much for sparing the time this afternoon to, to talk to our talk to me and talk to our listeners. Um, I know it's been very, very interesting and really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for asking. I'm happy to, happy to participate. This is Sean Jones again at Inside Bitcoins in London. It's um, a, a, a pleasant but foggy September day, and I'm sitting down with Amor Sexton, who's a lawyer with Adroit Lawyers in Sydney, Australia. Um, you've travelled a long way to to, to, to to this conference. What 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 drew you all these miles? Well, you've probably got loads of air miles now, haven't you? Uh, no, not quite. Um, I really, I was really, really curious to see what the Bitcoin industry was like in other countries. We've got a really strong. Um, but small Bitcoin industry in Australia. And um, I, I guess I just wanted to see what was happening in the rest of the world in that space, because you read about it on Coindesk and, and online, but it's nice to actually be here and put some faces to the name. And, and your, your, the firm you work for, um, does that specialise in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency business? We do now, yeah. We're a commercial law firm that's always dealt with technology companies. And I think as the industry grew and our clients started to get more interested in um, Bitcoin, we started to learn more about it. And we've got both um, a lot of clients that are Bitcoin companies. And we also um, have played an active role in liaising with the government on behalf of the industry to establish exactly what the regulatory framework is in Australia. And, and really, I suppose that's what I wanted to talk to you about, because just a few weeks ago, the um, tax authorities in Australia came out with a very important announcement. Um, if I understand correctly, not necessarily a very welcome announcement. Do you want to tell us a little about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, 
essentially what they did is they released official guidance and draft rulings, so which is actually going to be a binding ruling, um, on what the tax treatment is of cryptocurrencies um, and specifically Bitcoin. It was um, a very important thing for them to release because it shows that cryptocurrencies are definitely on the map. Um, they spent a lot of time thinking about it, a lot of resources into it. And I actually think that although the final outcome wasn't necessarily what the industry wanted um, to see, the fact that they put so much time and effort into understanding the technology and thinking about how the technology should be um, treated from a tax perspective, I think that bodes well for the future because sometimes getting regulators' attention is step one in the mm. process. So um, essentially what happened is they looked at um, income tax, capital gains tax and GST, which is the Australian version of sales tax. And, and in Europe we'd know that as value-added tax. Yes. And it works in a similar kind of way. If I Very similar, yeah. Um, uh, on the, the good news was with capital gains tax, they said that capital gains tax does apply because Bitcoin is property, but they said it doesn't apply if it's under $10,000. Mm -hmm. So that's good because it means that consumers can use Bitcoin without having to account for any capital gains and tax. And that's very pragmatic because in the States, it's, it's, it's quite the, the opposite and uh, technically virtually every cup of coffee you buy with a Bitcoin is is something you've got to maintain records on. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's hard work to do that. So it's more Very pragmatic. Practical. And, and, and it's consistent with their approach to other forms of personal use assets. Mm -hmm. So um, it wasn't a surprise but it was very that that part of it was quite welcome. Mm -hmm. I think what um, the industry and and the businesses are concerned about is the fact that they have said that the supply of a bitcoin is a taxable supply for sales tax purposes, and what that means is if you're registered for GST and it's in the course of your business and you pay with bitcoin or supply a bitcoin as an exchange, you've got to put 10% on that, 10% of the value of the transaction. Um, in some situations that means that there would be 10% for the goods and services and then 10% for the bitcoin and you have a double, um, tax a, a double taxation situation. So um, this is effectively treating it like barter? That's it's exactly what they're doing. They're saying that it's a commodity and it's a barter arrangement and mm. that it's not money or a currency. So, yeah, it's exactly what it is, a barter arrangement. Mm. And I guess um, that creates a lot of distortion um, the moment you move out of business-to-business -business transactions. So if you've got business-to-business -business transactions, well, yes, you've got to put your 10% on top, but you can take it back off. That's right. And claim it back That's as part right. of uh, of your input That's right. but um, the moment you have a consumer transaction that changes the, the true cost yes and I think I think aside from the actual financial cost just the fact that it's increased paperwork and increased compliance is what's concerning because the beauty of Bitcoin is that the transactions are so seamless and quick and efficient and once you introduce this level of complexity you're really undoing some of the benefits of uh, Bitcoin as a currency and as a payment um, method itself. So, um, especially for small businesses and startup businesses where paperwork is a cost to them because they have to pay accountants, bookkeepers, lawyers to figure it all out. So, um, even even in a business to business situation where there's input tax, I still think it's going to affect um, affect the industry. How has the industry reacted uh, in Australia? 
think, look, it's very early days. Um, it's just, the news has just come out. Um, I, the industry, there's kind of a concern about how it's going to affect it long term. I think at the moment, nobody quite knows what's going to happen. So there's a lot of people going, okay, well, can we move to another jurisdiction? You know, it all sounds very easy from a technical perspective, but practically mm. it's not easy to necessarily pick up and relocate and to do it right. Um, it's a, it can be a complicated and expensive process in itself. Um, it, I think what will be really interesting to see, and again, it's only been a few weeks, but it will be really interesting to see if it affects the um, merchant adoption, mm -hmm. whether or not companies are willing to accept payment in Bitcoin if they think it's too complicated. Um, I think that one of the ways that you can mitigate the impact is the fact that um, Bitcoin merchant services providers can automate a lot of that paperwork process. So because it's not cash, if you can build into your payment systems a, a way that paperwork can be done very easily, you might be able to um, mitigate some of the impact of the tax ruling. I, I can imagine it's it, it, it's a little bit of a nightmare for uh, a merchant. Uh, I can imagine someone who uh, who runs a coffee shop and a, a sideline is a catering service to local businesses. Mm -hmm. So consumers come in and buy their cup of coffee and a sandwich. And that's very easy because if they want to pay with Bitcoin, they're not going to add the, yeah, uh, exactly. GST to it. The moment... Um, they have a, a sale of a plate of sandwiches to the business around the corner that they then deliver at lunchtime. Uh, well, if they want to pay with Bitcoin, they're going to be faced with tax on top of the, the Bitcoin that's being used to pay. And then they've got to put that in as their input. I mean, I can imagine that's just a nightmare. It's this whole promise of Bitcoin being something uh, simple and easy and, 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 yeah. and, and with... Um, huge cost reduction implications that just goes out the window I, yeah definitely um what's interesting though is that Bartercard is quite successful in australia and that's a system that is being taxed um, with barter transactions as well so i think it is whilst i think it definitely has an impact long term i i'm not sure i mean mm -hmm. so it, if you can take some of the pain out of the process, you may find that there's other benefits of Bitcoin that will outweigh it. I think what the industry needs to do is, I know the industry at the moment is focusing on, well, how can we get the government to change their mind? That, of course, does need to be something people think about. But I think as well, we need to think about, well, how can we make this work for consumers? How can we make it work for businesses? Um, and is there benefits in Bitcoin that we can talk about to them? Like, I guess voicing your dissatisfaction with the tax treatment is important because the government needs to hear your opinion, but there needs to be some positivity out there too so yes. that you don't scare the general public away from adoption. Yes, because the, 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 the audience isn't always just the government or the regulator. It's, it's, it's all the people who are listening. And at the moment, there's a, a, a big audience of um, passive listeners waiting yeah. to find out what, what, what this thing of crypto is really about. Yeah. Um, is there a a way of appealing this uh, decision or this decision is an interpretation by the tax authority mm -hmm. of the law as it stands, as they believe it stands, and 
It's only that in can't draft. Change? Um, no, it, it could. It's in it's in draft stage at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interpretation, and they've got some draft um, public rulings, and they've invited submissions. It is possible that they could change, considering they've given it so much thought. I'm not sure how likely it is that they will change their mind. Um, there are some other ways that. Um, that, that you can look at trying to change the decision. One is that um, you could challenge it through the courts and what would ha- essentially have to happen there is somebody would have to get an assessment and then challenge that um, tax assessment. Right. That's a long process, a long and expensive process. Mm. Um, even if you take advantage of the, some funding that's available for tax appeal cases, it's still usually only about 40% of the costs um, and, you know, two to four years. Oh, well, so... <laughs> You know, what there is Bitcoin going to look like in two and, and the results years? may be just to uphold the, the decision. Absolutely, there's always that risk. Um, so the other avenue that you can um, choose to do is lobbying for legislative change. One of the difficulties with this specific um, specific piece of legislation is that it's um, a we've got a series of states we're like um the united states we're a federation of states which a lot of people don't realize um so it's a federally a federal act and a federally administered act but the money actually goes to the states and territories so in order to change that act you have to get approval from all the states and territories right. which is difficult very 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 difficult and are some states in australia m- more friendly towards bitcoin than others there certainly hasn't been any indication one way or another. I think just even the administrative and logistical process of that would make it complicated. So there'd be a lot of work to be done at the state level and, the and at the federal level to, right. get, to get a change through. That's right. Um, You're going to say that's another two to four years. <laughs> Maybe even longer. I mean, oh. at the moment, there's the, the government doesn't have a solid majority in the upper house either, so trying to pass anything is incredibly difficult. So there's a lot of kind of political reasons why that's difficult. Um, what, one of the things that probably isn't very clear is the main question that was being asked is whether uh, Bitcoin is money for purposes of just using um, Bitcoin as payment. But... For the exchanges, the exchange of fiat to Bitcoin, it was always relatively clear Mm. that the Act interpreted that to be a taxable supply. Um, And that's going to require legislative change. So even if you manage to get up on the money argument, for um, payments, you're still going to have, the exchanges are still going to have that extra step, that extra hurdle. So... I think what you might see is that a lot of exchanges start to look at jurisdictions outside of Australia. For example, Singapore, they have a similar approach to taxation, but you don't have to be registered for GST until you hit, I think it's a million in revenue, and it's only 7%. With a million? In revenue. Of which currency, sorry? Oh, Singaporean dollars. Sing- yeah. So um, I think the exchanges are definitely going to look at other jurisdictions mm. until does that present happens. problems for them when they're then um uh, when their customers are based in australia do they then have uh, to be registered in for va uh, sorry for gst in um, in australia uh, or they can operate completely offshore from australia this this is a fascinating question that i actually did raise with the tax office and they said it's a very fascinating question <laughs> i don't think anyone has the answer um if it's a normal good or a normal commodity, you've got import-export rules that you mm. can take advantage of. 
because Bitcoin doesn't necessarily exist anywhere, like in theory, you could move ashore offshore. It's a digital asset, yes. But in theory, you could go offshore, you could import it in, you could try and, you know, take advantage of um, different uh, tax situations in that way. But does a Bitcoin ever exist in a jurisdiction? I'm not sure. It exists only as a set of keys recorded on a blockchain, which exists everywhere and nowhere. So it'll be interesting to see how how that um, how that 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 idea develops and mm-hmm. how people decide to try and structure things. I gather there's some very attractive um, uh, Pacific islands not too far away from Australia that uh, 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 that that are attractive as offshore jurisdictions. So m- maybe we'll start seeing uh, a new e. Um, uh, Bitcoin exchange or, or somewhere like that. I've been hearing like a lot about the Bali Islands project. Oh, Bali, that sounds So, nice. yeah. <laughs> I don't I'll have to do some interviews there yeah, find out nice. what, what, what the Bitcoin scene is like in <laughs> we, Bali. We need to have a Bitcoin conference in Bora Bora, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, definitely, I think that'll probably be the next time I, I'm going to interview you for an update. So we'll, we'll look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, any other predictions for... Bitcoin in Australia, either as a consequence of GST, this GST decision, or from any anything else that's happening. There's there's a couple of interesting things to note about Australia as a marketplace, and one of the things is that we're one of the biggest adopters of mobile payments in the world. The Reserve Bank recently talked about the decline of cash in Australia. Mm -hmm. Contactless payments, in particular, are very very popular, Um, and with Bitcoin having the ease of that, but without the risk of fraud because it's a push technology. I actually think that as even though it's a small market, it's a good market to mm-hmm. prove your concept and and to solidify your your um, your business. Um, I think the other interesting thing about the Australian market is, to put it bluntly, we're quite used to being ripped off. Um, <laughs> we have um, a lot things are because we're quite isolated geographically. We get. A lot of things are more expensive. We pay bank fees. For example, if you take money out of an ATM and it's not your bank, you pay $2 mm-hmm. every transaction, things like that. So it will be interesting to see if that mentality means that people aren't that fussed about the extra 10% on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but it's certainly um, there's certainly various factors in the Australian market where I, I think it will be interesting to see how it develops. And, and, and from a cultural point of view, is it a sort of anti-establishment um, uh, society where, where, where the average person, whoever he or she is, sort of quite happy to, to, to rail against the, the banks and the... There's certainly not the same... I mean, there's always the old joke about everyone hates hates banks but um see we didn't go through the same thing and what i've been told no one else calls the gfc that's what we call the global financial crisis back home and i've been told this trip that only australia calls it the gfc um but we we didn't suffer quite as bad really well at all really in that process and part of that was our banking system and i think that since then there there seems to be more of um it, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say trust, mm-hmm. but I certainly think that there's a, a level of comfort with Australian banks in the okay. in the general population. Okay, so 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 Bitcoin isn't going to win because you know because it's a, it's seen or perceived to no. be an anti bank. No, thing. it'll win I think because Australians like new technology, mm-hmm. they like easy ways of payment, 
we're also we travel a lot we've got lots of relatives that live mm -hmm. overseas mm -hmm. i think it will win because it is a technology that offers so many choices to consumers mm -hmm. and i think that's what will really allow um it to get a foothold in the australian and on that very optimistic note i, I i'd like to thank you for, for for sharing your thoughts with epicenter bitcoin our listeners will be grateful and thank you for your time today Amal. <laughs> thank you <laughs> So thanks so much for listening and thank you to Sharn Jones for capturing those interviews in London. Uh, like I said, Sharn will be back next week with uh, interviews from the Crypto Valley Summit in the Isle of Man. Now, if you want to support the show, there are multiple ways you can do that. You can start by leaving us a review on iTunes. That really helps us in getting discovered by new listeners and just helps our overall rankings on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC. And finally, please leave us a tip at EpicenterBitcoin.com slash tips. So thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week.